morning's Bible reading comes from the book of Hebrews, chapter 9, verses 11 to 28. This is also found on page 1210 in your pew Bibles. Hebrews, chapter 9, verses 11 to 28. Christ is the perfect sacrifice. But when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands. That is to say, is not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of heifers sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean Sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death, so that we may serve the living God. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. In the case of a will, it is necessary to prove the death of the one who made it. Because a will is in force only when somebody has died. It never takes effect while the one who made it is living. This is why even the first covenant was not put into effect without blood when Moses had proclaimed every command of the law to all the people, he took the blood of calves together with water, scarlet wool and branches of hyssop and sprinkled the scroll and all the people. He said, this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you to keep. In the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. It was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again, the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But he has appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as people are destined to die once, and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many, and he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Linda.
just go back. Uh, so we survived Christmas this year. You have all made it through. And now we move on to New Year. I must admit I'm not a big fan of New Year's Eve. It just seems to take forever to get to midnight. I don't know. On a normal night, it just seems to get there easily. But on New Year's Eve, it seems to take forever. The other ambiguous place for me at New Year's is that we get to make New Year's resolution, which kind of makes sense. You know, you look back on the year that's been and you prepare for another. And I'm a big fan of reflection and intentionality, but New Year's just seems hard. Resolutions, I don't know, they seem a bit complicated. Harry Ganesh in the New York Times uh, said this a few years ago. Am I bouncing on those slides? Thanks, sorry, Deb. Um, New Year's resolutions seem like a great way to take stock of the last year and set goals for the next one. Unfortunately, by February, around 80% of people have failed to stick to theirs. Life-changing commitments are just hard to, well, commit to. And how do you go with New Year's resolutions? Are you going to make one this year? I must admit that over the last few years, I haven't really bothered because the feeling on kind of stuffing them up is just too discouraging. How do we process if 80% of us fail on our intentions to change by February? And how do you feel when your new exercise plan fails or when you've given up on the diet or when your plan to read the whole Bible in a year has stumbled over at Genesis 15? And what about if you have loftier goals? To spend more time with your kids, to work less, to be home by dinner at 5 p.m., to invest in close relationships, or to sort out your relationship with God? How do you feel then? Uh, one of my good friends made a resolution in November. She stayed away from New Year's. She decided she was going to be kind to people, especially people in her family, her husband and her kids, to work at making sure every interaction with them was kind, to refuse to respond in anger or retaliation. And she was finding Christmas time particularly difficult. I really admire her for making such a resolution, but that feels pretty hard. And it feels like it's a resolution that matters. So what happens when we fail at things that really matter? When our resolutions fall through, and particularly when they impact on others? And what do we do with that guilty conscience, which is such a big burden to carry? And maybe New Year's resolutions just really capture something that is true for us all of the year. Things that we carry all year. Good intentions, a commitment to try a bit harder, to make things a bit better, to improve my behaviour or my attitudes to people and events. We all desire to self-improve, to be better people, to be fitter, to be more focused, to be more prayerful, to read more books, to spend time with family and friends. And New Year's Eve fills us with optimism that maybe next year will bring the change that I need.
I find it really fascinating that as human beings, we have this real deep-seated desire to be better, to improve, to be more than we are now. And our society just feeds that at the moment. In my feed at the moment, my socials, I don't, don't know whether this reflects more on me than on you, there are lots of tips for self-improvement, for ideas on how to renovate my life or how to renovate myself as a person. And I think it highlights to us the condition, the human condition, that generally we are people who feel uneasy and dissatisfied about ourselves and about how we live and function in the world. We carry guilt. Some of that guilt is subjective. We've done, sorry, objective. We've done the wrong thing and hurt others and disobeyed God. And some of that guilt is subjective or covert. Covert guilt tells us that we're not enough, that maybe we're not right, that we're out of kilt with those around us. We are often plagued and our subconscious goes to work. It creates dissatisfaction and often makes us anxious. We carry objective guilt and subjective guilt and our consciences are troubled and we feel burdened. Well, today's passage speaks into that dilemma in a real and powerful way. What is the solution? How do we deal with a troubled conscience? And how do we deal with the guilt that weighs on us, especially in those times when we fail to change and improve? Well, today we are pointed to Jesus, the one who brings forgiveness, who brings grace and freedom, and the one who provides a solution outside ourselves for guilt and shame. So today, two points. Jesus is the one who deals with our sin and our guilty conscience, and he secures our future. Well, today's slightly unusual passage comes from the book of Hebrews. Uh, it's a wonderful letter in the New Testament, and it's written particularly to people who are trying to underst who understood and who loved the Old Covenant, particularly the laws and the traditions found in the Old Testament. And it serves as a warning to them to not return to Jewish habits and traditions, but instead to embrace the New Covenant brought in by Jesus to embrace the grace and freedom that he offers. It's a passage that tells the readers of Hebrews so clearly what Jesus has done and why it is him and him alone who provides us a way out of a guilty conscience and the oppression of guilt and sin. So Jesus deals with our sin and our guilty conscience. The Israelites, like us, had a problem with sin and with wrongdoing. They carried guilt and they needed a solution to cleanse them, to make them right when they had sinned. They relied on the temple and the sacrifices to fix their relationship with God. For them, the high priest in the Old Covenant offered sacrifices on their behalf to cleanse them and to restore them to God. One of the most important part, uh, times in the Jewish calendar was the Day of Atonement, or Yom Kippur. We read about it in Leviticus 16. 
the high priest would enter the holiest place in the temple and offer the blood of bulls and goats as a sacrifice for the sins of the people. Leviticus 16 tells us, Aaron shall then slaughter the goat for the sin offering for the people and take its blood behind the curtain and do with it as he did with the bull's blood. He shall sprinkle it on the atonement cover and in front of it. In this way, he will make atonement for the most holy place because of the uncleanness and rebellion of the Israelites, whatever their sins have been. The Day of Atonement was a significant time because the sins of the people were taken away. Leviticus 16 goes on, Because on this day atonement will be made for you to cleanse you. Then before the Lord you will be clean from your sins. They were released from their sins. And you can see why the Day of Atonement was such a significant day because the people of God came together aware of their sin, a sacrifice was offered, and their sins were cancelled. They were cleansed, and they went home that very day with their conscience washed clean. As it says in Isaiah 1, Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are as red as crimson, they shall be like wool. And in the book of Hebrews, in this chapter, the writer picks up that language of the Day of Atonement. He speaks about how Jesus offered an even greater forgiveness and an even greater cleansing. Hebrews 9.11 tells us, When Christ came as the high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is made not with human hands, that is to say, is not part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered into the most holy place, once for all, by his own blood, so obtaining eternal redemption. Jesus becomes the great high priest, And he doesn't enter into an earthly temple located in Jerusalem, made of bricks and mortar. He instead enters into the heavenly temple and into the very presence of God. And he doesn't enter with the blood of goats and bulls, like on the Day of Atonement, but instead with his very own blood shed on the cross. And unlike the priests in the Old Covenant, He is the great high priest, and he offers himself a once-for-all sacrifice that brings eternal redemption. And what is redemption? Well, it's just another word for the deliverance from sin and rescue from the burden of guilt. Jesus enters into into the very presence of God as the great high priest because unlike all the other priests, He is holy, he is free from guilt and defilement, and he is the perfect sacrifice. Hebrews 7 tells us, Such a high priest truly meets our needs, one who is holy and blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, 
He does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. Jesus is the perfect sacrifice, without blemish, and unlike the priests of old who offer sacrifices first for their own sins, Jesus is blameless and pure, and he offers a far superior sacrifice. In verse 13 to 14, it says, The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from the acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? The writer asks the question, how much more than the old covenant will the sacrifice of Jesus cover us? How much more will the blood of Christ, the perfect, all-sufficient sacrifice, cleanse our consciences? And the answer is implied and obvious, so much more. His sacrifice eclipses all other sacrifices that had gone before. He is the perfect sacrifice, and unlike the blood of goats, he offers a far more effective cleaning. The cleansing from Jesus does not need a top-up every year, but instead washes us clean forever. And his blood covers all of our sins, the ones in the past, the ones of today, and the ones that will come in the future. And it's not just a superficial cleaning. It does not just sort of change our outward look or behavior or appearance. It's a real deep inward clean. The sacrifices of the Old Testament brought outward cleansing, but with Jesus, every part of us is clean. Deb's ahead of me, you've got that terrible picture on the screen. I was thinking about what sort of deep cleaning do we have in our life. I think it's a bit like cleaning our teeth. Every day we clean our teeth, morning or night. We grab our Oral-B electric toothbrush and it whirls around on the surface of our teeth. Maybe on a good day we manage to floss and even swish the mouthwash around. And all in all, our teeth are pretty clean. But it's only when you go to the dentist, when you get that real deep cleaning, as they use that terrible scaler that whirs around to scrape back the plaque and the tartar around your gums and in between your teeth. And then they use that fine sort of brush to polish up your teeth. And then they pick and poke until your teeth are fully and perfectly clean. As you might know, I don't love going to the dentist. But boy, you really feel like your teeth are clean when you come out after that moment. You can get rid of that image, Deb. (laughs) And Jesus fully cleans. Deep down, not just superficially, but he cleans our hearts and our souls and he washes our polluted consciences. 
Jesus does an inward clean, a spiritual clean. He washes our souls and those deep, dark recesses that we hope no one knows about. Jesus, through his spirit, cleans and in that brings regeneration and renovation, transformation and real change. It's that cleansing that restores us in relationship with God. It's that cleansing that allows the Holy Spirit to live in us and it's what allows us to live as God's people to serve him and his world. Sin is thoroughly dealt with, guilt is removed, and it's done at the cross. So what does that mean for us? Well, lots of things, but it means that our sins are paid for, past, present, and even future. It means that your guilt is lifted. No one can bring a charge against you as all the wrongdoing is wiped away. It means that you are cleaned. Though your sins were like scarlet, they are now as white as snow. And that means your conscience can be clear. You have received eternal redemption, eternal release from your sin. Your objective guilt is dealt with. And you are free right now if you trust in the Lord Jesus and his death on your behalf. You are free. What wonderful good news. And what about that covert subjective guilt, the stuff that bumps around your head, the stuff that makes you feel that you might not be good enough, that feeling that you need to be more or better? Well, Jesus speaks into that as well. He tells you that you are known and loved by God that your worth and your value doesn't come with your ATAR score or how much you earn or your dress size, your your popularity, how smart you are, whether you own real estate, whether you're married or single, whether you're a good parent or a good child or any of the other things that bump around your head in the middle of the night. It's not about those things. Instead, it is about who you are before God. And when he looks at you, you are, a spark, you are sparkling clean. You are free from guilt and sin, and you are his beloved child. We are redeemed. We are delivered from sin. And as Colossians tells us, echoing Hebrews, Jesus presents us to God holy without blemish and free from accusation. And when God looks at us, when God looks at you, he sees you as someone washed clean, without blemish, sparkling. And it's only Jesus who can do that for us, who can meet us in the places when we feel dissatisfied and uncomfortable with ourselves. It's only Jesus who can deal with our guilt and sin and carry away the things we have done wrong. And it's only Jesus by his spirit who can rebuild and repair, who can change and transform. Paul Tripp says, 
Redemption is only ever found vertically. Nothing horizontal will ever redeem us. Self-improvement is very limited, especially when we add into it our wrongdoings, our sins, our mistakes and our failures. We need saving from the outside. And Jesus does that as a sufficient, full sacrifice who washes clean. You'll never have enough will or determination, never enough goodness and righteousness to make things right by yourself. You need outside help. And so we rely on Jesus' will and determination, his perfect goodness and his righteousness, which becomes ours and releases us from the constant pressure to self-improve. Jesus also secures our future. Jesus' cleaning is eternal, and so it naturally has a future aspect. His redemption is all-encompassing. He delivers us from our sins now, and he secures that into the future. Hebrews 9.27 says, Just as people are destined to die once, and after that to face judgment. So Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many, and he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those waiting for him. This verse captures the human reality as outlined in the gospel. All people will die and be held accountable to God. And I wonder whether it's that truth that kind of shapes um, who we are, the reality that that judgment lies in the future. And for all human beings, it drives that desire to be better people, to improve. I think for all human beings, it's built into our DNA that we need to be in right relationship with God and the reality that we are not able to do it ourselves. This verse promises us that Jesus will return a second time to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. For believers in Jesus, it reminds us that we are safe, that Jesus has dealt with our sins, and so when he appears, he will bring salvation for those of us who wait for him. And if you're not a believer, but you're here searching for God, then these words are a warning and an invitation to come to Jesus for salvation and for cleansing, to prepare you for that final judgment. And Miles or Jerry or I would love to talk to you about that and how you can explore that in 2024. And a week on from Christmas where we celebrated the birth of Jesus, his first coming, we wait now for his return his second coming. Sin was dealt with in his first coming. He secured the salvation for us, his people. And when he comes again, we will receive all the blessings of salvation. When we will see him face to face and be ushered in as citizens of a new creation. It's on his return that we will receive the full blessings of salvation 
and then we will be fully changed, fully transformed and perfected. And so the call on us this year is to wait patiently as we face another new year. We look to Jesus and rest in his salvation as we do not grow weary or lose heart. We can look into 2024 with hope, knowing that God will be with us in his spirit and he will be at work transforming and renewing us throughout the year. Now, I'm not entirely against New Year's resolution despite my intro, so you may still want to focus on a New Year's resolution or a project in 2024. You may even want to focus on a spiritual project to grow in your relationship with God, to be part of a growth group, as Juliet advocated, to be more regular at church, to read your Bible, to pray at work. I know sometimes I choose a theme for the year. One year it was to be more gentle, another to be less angry. I reflect on the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5 and choose a characteristic that I would like to focus on. But as we draft our New Year's resolutions, we do it knowing that it doesn't win us favour with God because in the Lord Jesus we have been redeemed. We already have God's favour. He sees you as holy and righteous and without blemish. And we do it with his help. The Lord Jesus, by his spirit, does the work of transformation and change in your life. So start by praying and ask the spirit to work that change in you. And as you work together, you'll become more and more like the Lord Jesus. So as I finish, I'm going to lead us in prayer, and I'm going to use a prayer written by Billy Graham for the new year. So let's pray that together. Our Father and our God, as we stand at the beginning of this new year, we confess our need of your presence and your guidance as we face the future. We each have our hopes and expectations for the year that is ahead, but you alone know what it holds for us, and only you can give us the strength and wisdom we will need to meet its challenges. So help us to humbly put our hands into your hand and to trust you and to seek your will for our lives during this coming year. In the midst of life's uncertainties, in the days ahead, assure us of the certainty of your unchanging love. In the midst of life's inevitable disappointments and heartaches, help us to turn to you for the stability and comfort we will need. In the midst of life's temptations and the pull of our stubborn self-will, help us not to lose our way, but to have courage to do what is right in your sight. As we look back over the past year, we thank you for your goodness to us far beyond what we have deserved. May we never presume on your past goodness or forget all your messes to us, but may they instead lead us to repentance and to a new commitment to make you the foundation and centre of our lives this year. And so, our Father, we thank you for the promise and hope of this new year, and we look forward to it with expectancy and faith. 
This we ask in the name of our Lord and Saviour, who is by his death and resurrection has given us hope both for this world and the world to come. Amen.